0: Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Grant, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Lane DeGregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y thepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. Fairfield grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. Gangry the Podcast is also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University, home to the Digital Journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in Literature, Creative Writing, Professional Writing, and Teacher Education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu.
1: Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullos. For this episode, I'm going to replay one of my favorite shows that I've done since I started the podcast back in 2012. On this show, I moderated a discussion among five great reporters, Ben Montgomery, Thomas Lake, Michael Cruz, Wright Thompson, and Tony Rehagen, about the equally great Michael Brick. Brick died on February 8th, 2016, after battling colon cancer. We're approaching the third anniversary of Brick's death. But his name and amazing work lives on because a book of his stories, Everyone Leaves Behind a Name, was put together by the guests on the show and published by the Sager Group. Thompson said that in rereading his friend's work, he realized he had forgotten how great the stories really are.
2: I went back and read these stories and you forget how fucking great they are because even his great work sometimes got sort of left in the shadow of his enormous wonderful big personality and so i think this book is an attempt to make sure that these stories which belong in any sort of accounting of the best journalism done in america you know these stories and the person who did them deserves to be remembered as such and so i feel like that's the arc of the book
1: one of brick's great talents according to lake was writing about ordinary people in everyday life, and doing so poetically.
3: People who might otherwise, people in places who might otherwise never have ended up uh, in the pages of the New York Times. uh, Not only did he put them there, but uh, he put them there in this just uh, beautiful and eloquent way.
1: The stories that are included in Everyone Leaves Behind a Name were originally published in the New York Times, the Houston Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, Harper's Magazine, and others. Brick also wrote the book, Saving the School, which was published by Penguin Press in 2012. Everyone Leaves Behind a Name is still available on the Sager Group's website, which is at www.thesagergroup.net. It's also available on Amazon.com. All proceeds from book sales go to Brick's family. As usual, I put links to the book and some of Brick's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangreathepodcast.com. Thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast, everyone.
4: Yeah. Well, welcome to us, yes, yes. <laughs> this
1: is a, a lot of repeat uh, visitors. This is the first time we've had repeat visitors to the podcast. Ben's been on it and Cruz and, and, and Wright. Uh... But this is a great occasion, I think, to to have a bunch of people on uh, to talk about Michael Brick. Um, He obviously passed away in February, and you all have put together a book um, titled Everyone Leaves Behind a Name uh, of his work uh, at the New York Times, at the Dallas Morning News, at the Houston Chronicle, and in magazines. And I I, I, I read the book um, on Monday and Tuesday. And I couldn't put it down. I was just like floored by how amazing all of his work was. And, you know, I, I, as I'm reading it, I'm starting to regret the fact that I never actually met him. But I feel like through the book, I did uh, in, in, his, in his work. And so I want to thank you guys for putting that together. Um, I'd like to just treat this time as where you guys can talk about your favorite stories by Michael Brick and your favorite Michael Brick stories. Um, you know, as you know, they come through in the book as well, especially in those the introductions to each piece. Um, but first, can we can someone talk about the book and how it came about?
5: Sure. <clears throat> um, oh, Jesus, uh, what happened? So, let, let me let me even back up like a little bit further than that. And uh, when was the first talk with Tom?
3: That would be uh, October two thousand nine. So we,
5: me and Tom and and um, and uh, Cruz uh, had a, a conversation one night with beers on my back porch, and we were talking about how um, this is at a time when uh, the like newspaper conferences were sort of tapering off. And we were talking about how we missed uh, the time together, like outside of the conference, but being in the presence of other writers at a bar or whatever. Uh, and so we came up with this, uh, audacious idea of trying to recreate that the best things of newspaper conferences, which was really the hangout time, mm-hmm. uh, to try to recreate that. And Tom's, uh, lovely family, uh, offered to host it at their place in Ludowici, Georgia. And that first year, uh, maybe Tom could talk about this a little bit, but that first year, Tom, I think just w- kind of willy nilly invited some all-stars, some people that we really liked whose work we respected, even if we'd never met them. And I I'd never met Brick before that, but uh, uh, how did you invite him, Tom?
3: Yeah. um, As I remember it, you were the one who invited him. You had been posting a lot of his stories on gangray.com. You'd been kind of uh, admiring his work from a distance for years and posting these incredible stories that he did uh, just from courthouses in Brooklyn, that sort of thing. And and we we were all amazed by... uh, how eloquent he could be writing on such a short deadline. Uh, And so we sort of divided up uh, who, you know, uh, Ben, you invite these people, I'll invite these people. Um, uh, Ben and I believe it was you who uh, reached out to him that time. And um, the amazing thing was he actually said yes. Uh, He was going to come hang out with uh, some strangers in the woods, people he'd never met before. Uh, It was sort of a leap of faith he took. And uh, we're certainly glad he did.
5: So he came that that first year, and and um, and I felt like was uh, just a gr- a great part of the conversation. Brick had this way of um, kind of uh, making you forget he was there until uh, things seemed to be wrapping up, you know, you're finishing addressing a certain subject, and um, and he would chime in at the end with. Uh, you know, it was something profound. I wish I had a good example of this, but, um, it was like, um, you know, I've, I've written before he sort of the, the master of the walk away. Uh, so his, his company was excellent. And then after hours, when we were done with the business of, uh, what we do is, uh, c- criticize each other, <laughs> especially Tom. And we were, we were done with the business of, um, of, uh, of, of the day. Uh, we, you know, we're sitting around drinking and, and having a good time and and passing around, um, musical instruments. And Brick pulls out, uh, a songbook and opens it up. And in my mind, it was like, um, you know, this kind of crusty, uh, old notebook, but he played and sang a song and, uh, and it was something he had written. All the rest of us were doing covers and, and Brick had actually written this. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know, it, it impressed me in a big way. And, um, Long story short, he kept coming back, and then uh, last year he didn't. And it was because he, um, he had learned he uh, couldn't leave on account of uh, uh, some intensive chemotherapy treatments. Um, he found out he had cancer uh, and let all of us know. And for a while there, there, was, um, there was some hope. Uh, and then we, uh, a bunch of us went to visit him in, in January, uh, it was January 8th. And the day we got there, he uh, he learned that uh, they were taking—they were stopping the chemo. That there was um, his liver couldn't handle it anymore, and so um, it was. Maybe one of y'all want to talk about that time. It was uh, it was a powerful day that we spent in his company. Um, Right? Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think anyone knew what to do. I mean, I you know, we'd all been around sick and dying people before, but never, to me, at least to me, never like this. And, I mean, the takeaway for me is, while we're all fumbling around like idiots, he just sat there and calmly and and powerfully and bravely addressed the news he'd gotten, like, you know, 12 hours, 15 hours before, and just walked us through the, you know, what he'd learned and the things that he had found mattered and didn't. And, you know, we're all like, what do you want to do? And I remember a couple of things clearly, and other people can add the things they remember. One, he just talked about how with chemotherapy he couldn't eat. And right. so he couldn't, He hated food. And so he we, he asked us to go get his favorite tacos from this taco place because he could taste food again. And I just remember him saying, this is a good fucking taco. Right. And I just was like, oh, my God. I mean, when, when you get down to it and you have days and weeks left, the things that, I don't know, I take for granted constantly suddenly seemed very important. And I remember he talked very poignantly, and I think this hit home for all of us, about you devote your life to writing these stories and, you know, you sacrifice many things and relationships in your life to try to do this thing well. And you wonder, at the end of the day, is anyone... Are these things going to live after me or you or or him? And so, you know, there are many more powerful things, but I feel like the book was born out of that idea because you meet Brick and he's such a big personality and his songs are so incredible. And he almost is like a character in a novel. And I mean, I just, like you, Matt, I went back and read these stories and you forget how fucking great they are because... Even his great work sometimes got sort of left in the shadow of his enormous, wonderful, big personality. And so I think this book is an attempt to make sure that these stories, which belong in any sort of accounting of the best journalism done in America, you know, these stories and the person who did them deserves to be remembered as such. And so I feel like that's the arc of the book. I don't know if anyone...
4: And Matt, it's interesting that you had said that you feel like you know him after reading the book, because I don't know about you guys, but like, what's amazing to me and, and what always kind of, when we started this thing, was how close I felt to him, despite the fact that really, what we we hung out in person maybe seven or eight times over the course of like the last decade, but yet you feel close to him, and I think it's because we both, both it's kind of the spirit of Lutawisi that that it kind of invites that communion, but it's also... Reading him and reading his work, you do get to know him. Uh, and working on this book, like I feel like I feel ten times closer to him than I did before. That I don't know if you guys have the same experience, but working and reading through this book a few times, I feel like I know him much better now than I did bu- before.
5: The uh, the idea, Matt, to answer the question you asked, it was very um, it was super organic, and I think it just after that visit uh, to Austin, uh, it may have been that evening. After we left him, when we um, when we said we need to we need to preserve this, you know, uh, do something good for his family, but also try to uh, put together a, a collection of his work that solidifies his place in American letters. And so we started in earnest trying to do that. And actually, we were I had the feeling like we were kind of racing the clock. I wanted to get a copy in his hands uh, before he uh, before he died, and uh, and so, and so uh, we divvied up the work, and uh, and we asked um, our friends, uh, which now include, um, you know, the the dignitaries of the journalism mm-hmm. world. We asked Gary Smith and Charlie Pierce and um, Michael Paterniti and Chris Jones and uh, you know some some Amy Wallace, and some writer writers who uh, knew Brick uh, to contribute little essays to talk about him or. Or tell about a, sto- a particular story um, mm-hmm. and so uh, we got it to him uh, not in not in print form but in digital form we sent him a copy when uh, when things seemed to be looking bad um, and saw he saw the cover yeah mm-hmm. his brother Jeff uh, and Kurt Eichenwald who also contributed mm-hmm. an essay uh, read to him uh, from the book uh, and I I it was interesting. I heard from a friend of his, Kathy Blackwell, who was also there at the time, supporting his wife Stacy. And Kathy said um, they thought they thought the end was then, and he wound up living about another two weeks after that, um, eight days, I think. Um, anyways, I, I say all this just to say that uh, it was an effort, number one, for him, and number two, to, to try to preserve his legacy in the in the writing world.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I was struck with struck as I was reading the, the reading the um, the book is so much of his so work was short, short, right? And and so much attention now is paid on to great big stories, um, but that's not necessarily what he did. He did these really real life pieces, and I think in that way, that's kind of how you get to know him is what he was interested in as a reporter. Um, can let's talk about uh, I know, and the other the other great thing that I th- I love about the book is all the those introductions that you all have written uh in the book uh as well as everyone else you mentioned uh that really really does a great job of showing you showing the reader I think who who Michael Brick was um can we talk about each of the, each one of you wrote an introduction to one of the stories uh in the book uh I'm assuming does that mean that that story was one of your favorites or uh I, I don't know how that worked out but uh can, I mean can we talk about what your favorite Michael Brick stories were?
3: Who wants to go first? Uh, Well, Matt, uh, to answer your question about uh, sort of these stories revealing what he was interested in, I think uh, one thing he did especially well was uh, writing about ordinary people and everyday life Mm -hmm. and somehow making it poetic, Uh, people who might otherwise, people in places who might otherwise never have ended up uh, in the pages of the New York Times. Uh, Not only did he put them there. But uh, he put them there in this just uh, beautiful and eloquent way. And uh, so we asked him uh, that time we visited him in Austin in January, uh, what, was, what was your own favorite story? Uh, what do you think uh, your best work was? And he pointed to, uh, it was really, I guess, a series of three stories that he had done about a place called Ruby's, Mm -hmm. Uh, it uh, it was Coney Island, right? Mm -hmm. And he visited there, Uh, he wanted to just give a sense uh, of really what summer was like, Uh, a strange assignment, something you wouldn't expect uh, to see in the New York Times, but uh, this was some of his best work, and and, um, if you don't mind, I'll just read uh, one sentence from there. Uh, the end of one of his Ruby stories uh, that uh, was an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Another summer bites the dust, Cindy Jacobs said. Master swallowed a double shot of whiskey and put his finger to his lips. Out in the blackness, the rockets came without preamble in tracers of gold and green and carnival noise, squalling and fitful bass and snare of a piece and voices ascending and no music and Vicky sitting there clapping without a sound
0: (laughs) that story I mean that series of stories uh, could have been sort of and I think was at first like dismissed as a bit of a you know uh, puff piece scene piece and it could have been it would have been in in the hands of a uh, of a lesser observer, uh and a lesser uh journalist. But I mean, he turned that into a story about I guess what uh all stories are about, which is uh life and death. I mean that 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 takes you from the beginning of summer to the end of summer. Um and uh he sees that and that comes across uh in those stories right up to that last line that uh that Tom just read. Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah. That <clears throat> reminds yeah. that, real quick, that reminds me, you know, the we should thank the New York Times was unbelievable, Mm -hmm. and the Houston Chronicle and the Dallas Morning News, and, you know, what people did quickly cutting through red tape Mm -hmm. to give us permission to run all this stuff, I just think, I don't know, I'm sure appreciative, and, I mean, these guys did this unbelievably quickly with no drama, and so this couldn't have happened with, without, you know, editors getting the lawyers out of the way, so I just... Uh, I don't know. Before we move on, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Ben. I just want to make sure we say that. No, for sure. Absolutely.
5: I was going to say, right, uh, you write about kind of um, the
2: subversive side of getting uh, these stories like this into the paper. Can you expand on that? Well, I mean, look, the New York Times is a wonderful newspaper and a very easy target to make fun of. You know, the, the classic <laughs> one two one two trend, you know, uh, uh, but like... These things were both like the story I wrote about, which is him writing about gentrification and, you know, hipsterism in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, years before most people even knew about it and many years before it became sort of a television cliche is, I mean, that story is like five different things at once. It is both an, a unbelievably perceptive trend story and an important piece of journalism writing about the city in which the paper covers. And yet it also manages to be very subtly also a send-up of that kind of story that the paper is famous for and uses the paper's sort of house voice as a way to both further the individual story and kind of make fun of the paper. I mean, it is like next level ninja genius stuff. Go! I laugh at that story every time I read it for all of those <laughs> reasons because I can't believe they ran it. I yeah. can't believe they ran it and didn't know he was making fun of them. Like yeah. I don't, I don't understand.
4: Didn't it's, it, it's, like, it said, like to be the best and the worst? that people have said said both ways that have ever run the.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, it's people have called it the best and worst story. That's like a shibboleth. Anyone who says it's the worst story ever ran the New York Times missed it. Like, they didn't get that they were the ones being made fun of. I don't know. That thing is that thing is just nuclear hot. I almost said something else, but I noticed there's a kid in frame, so I caught myself. Uh, but the thing is just nuclear hot. Should I, should I read a little bit of that?
1: Yes. yes. Yeah, go for, yes. for it.
5: Todd Fat Joe has moved out, and Williamsburg may never be the same. New York neighborhoods do not announce their sea changes. There's no news release or banner draped across the street. Sometimes there's just a certain guy and a thing that guy does and before you know it the neighborhood has made has made one of those subtle shifts that sort of uh, the sort that keep New York <laughs> fascinating. Remember when Bill Clinton opened an office in Harlem or Miguel Algarin founded the New Yorkian Poets Cafe on the Lower East Side or when Harvey Lichtenstein uh, Lichtenstein sh- started spreading the Brooklyn Academy of Music facilities around Fort Greene? Todd, Fat Joe is no former president or renowned poet, but for Williamsburg, he is a tiny bellwether. In this neighborhood, bohemianism begat or gave way to hipsterism in the blink of a decade, and Mr. Fat Joe was right there. One moment, there were industrial lofts illegally housing art students who spent days at the El Cafe. The next, there was not one but two cavernous Thai restaurants, and the neighborhood kept them both busy. And there was Mr. Fat Joe in an expansive loft far from the main drag, Bedford Avenue, knee-deep in the hoopla. He had a job at a record store, gigs as a DJ, an untamed afro, and three roommates. They held five parties during their tenancy that Mr. Fat Joe would later describe as major, defined as involving three separate sound systems blaring away in different parts of the apartment. It was just insane, Mr.
1: Fat
3: Joe said. Mr. Fat Joe!
1: That's the best part of the whole piece, right? (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. the it's, fact that it's not just fat joe but mr fat joe yes. the story to another level
5: <laughs> the, the telltale sign that the party was ending came in the hipster equivalent of a semaphore a flyer on the wall inside the shopping mall on bedford avenue below the flyer for the dance band seeking a musician mr fat joe posted earlier this summer that the partyingest loft in all of williamsburg was on the market He wrote with a simple yet passionate eloquence, speaking directly to his peers in a parlance that showed him to be of the place and moment. If you've ever been to my duplex loft, you know how truly dope it is, Mr. Fat Joe began. He listed some conventional real estate amenities such as wood floors, 14-foot ceilings, and skylights for a monthly rent of $2,400, then moved uh, on to recount others that only a steeped Williamsburg hipster could appreciate. Popeye's and Dunkin' Donuts on the corner, about four 24-hour bodegas on the corner, two Chinese food places next to both entrances, and it's above and across from two 99-cent stores, he wrote. If you have to ask why proximity to multiple 99-cent stores might be an advantage, you will never know. Mr. Fat Joe's truly dope duplex loft is not in the gentrified Williamsburg of investment bankers and corporate media types. Those 24-hour bodegas, he mentioned, have bulletproof glass. And one sells Marlboro's with Virginia tax stickers. stickers. This is the Williamsburg where a spoonful of party helps to squalor go go down. down.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is
0: awesome.
2: Dude, Dude, I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Like, it's so great, and that ran in the New York Times. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, that stuff is bananas.
5: (laughs) Matt, I should also mention that that, – around 2 a.m. on every uh, uh, Saturday night in October when we get together on the, on, on the screen porch at Tom's parents' house, we read this thing out loud. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> and it's as if reading it every time is, you know.
2: Is, is, you know when you're there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, and by the way, I've read it a lot, and I always skip the line about Nero because until you just said it, I've never known how to pronounce it. So I just <laughs> cut that line from the story. i just moved right over that and then i had to cut the next line about renowned poet so it would you know because you couldn't mess up the symmetry of it (laughs) square so so my ability to to do the second part of that was in direct reflection to the amount of of alcohol consumed (laughs) oh that's a great story i mean that's ridiculous
5: yeah and 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 uh, all of them in their own way. Although that's hilarious, all of them in their own way have something.
1: Ben, you kind of broke up right there. Uh,
5: something. Uh, I missed it. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Can you go ahead and repeat what you said? We kind of lost uh, lost your signal. I think.
5: Oh, I was saying that uh, every. You know, everything he brought to the table was uh, was had something that was like a little jewel or, uh, you know, a, a nugget, a gift to the reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the one that I intro is this short, you know, it's probably 500 words or less, but it's a little shaken and stirred column. And the Times used to do it somewhere in, you know, in the Sunday paper. Uh, but it was just a, a short riff on a particular drink. And Rick chose to um, do this little mini profile of this bartender at a bowling alley in Brooklyn. Uh, and it's glorious. It's, mm-hmm. Jesus, how
4: did you do It's really impressive work.
1: How about anyone else? How about you, Tony?
4: Uh, just a favorite story. I, I personally, I, I really dug the Harper story. Uh, um, uh, was it Jingo?
0: Unchained. Mm-hmm. Unchained.
4: That's right. That ran in Harper's. Yeah. I mean, just, and I'm it's pro- partially because I'm, I'm partial to, to uh, professional wrestling, but also because it was kind of a time to kind of it was the first big long magazine piece I read. Of his, like, I love the I love the the New York Times pieces, uh, and, and part of that's the art of it as well. But like this deep dive into this bizarre subculture really, really kind of I thought was right in right in Brick's wheels. Um, and I, I didn't I didn't write the intro to that. I did I did the intro to the, the Coney Island thing. But mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. one of my favorite my favorite uh, Brick pieces. Mm-hmm.
1: Michael, you had told me that one of the the Ruby stories were some of your favorite, Um, and we had talked about that, but I think you also wrote the the intro to the the New Orleans Arena League team uh, story.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, all of them, uh, they're in here for a a reason. Uh, I could have written the intro to uh, every single one of them, Mm -hmm. uh, but... This one was this one was the one um, that I sort of uh, I sort of got I mean everybody else was sort of claiming other stories so mm-hmm. but this one like I was saying before I mean this could have been a last shot sports story mm-hmm. and it's not because of the level of observation and the level of reporting you know something and I wasn't here when you guys were starting um, unfortunately but you know, I think back to that first little Wissy and, and uh, meeting Brick there for the first time, and he, he seemed uh, so much older uh, to me, so much more experienced. Um, and in reality, he's, you know, only a few years older than, than I am. And I think that has something to do with sort of uh, the, way and the ways in which he had, had lived. And so that comes across to me in, in his work, you know, that he is, there's something almost world-weary uh, about him, and uh, there's like a certain knowingness uh, that comes from experience, but at the same time, you know, that world weariness didn't hadn't led to uh, cynicism. You know, there's something so sort of sharp-eyed about his work, but also um, open-eyed and open-hearted. Um, and so he sees uh, uh, this quarterback this last chance quarterback uh, Danny Wimfreen playing for the arena league football team in new Orleans, uh, called the voodoo and, and in Danny, in Danny sees, I think something really, really universal. And something I think he had had experience with, you know, how do you, how do you let a dream die and start a new one, which is really what, um, is the challenge for all of us. Right. And, uh, you know, here's a guy who has old, uh, who's living with his parents. Uh, his football career is all but over. Uh, the death of that portion of his life, an important, important portion of his life, his championship rings, old championship rings are in dresser drawers in his parents' house. Uh, and he has uh, a few more uh, moments in the light uh, before he has to move on to the next thing, to like sort of recapture a new dream to go on and... Uh, you know, as I say in, 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 my, in my introduction, um, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we meet a, a fading player in a last chance league, a quarterback for a team called the Voodoo, who keeps old championship rings in a dresser drawer in the house where he lives with his parents, who chases the life he longs for in an arena called the Graveyard. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is not just sort of uh, noticing things and writing them in your notebook. Uh, and then dumping them into your copy. It is understanding what you're observing, uh, yes. thinking about themes, uh, universal um, uh, themes.
5: Can runs, you read the top of
0: that, Michael? runs onto the field through what Bricks describes as an elaborate cemetery. He said he wants so badly to stand in the light for as long as it lasts. So, yeah, so the, more importantly, Bricks' words, um, at 26, Stateline, New Orleans, in the times, at 26, Danny Winfrey lives with his parents not far from his old high school in a room full of time-worn football posters and state championship rings. His father has a dog named Boots, and Boots likes chasing squirrels. Sometimes Boots will catch a squirrel and eat it, and other times a squirrel will get away.
1: The one thing I... I love about all of these stories, <clears throat> and I don't know if I noticed this when I read Brick stories, like when, when would put them up on gangry.com, uh, and I don't maybe I didn't notice it because I wasn't reading them almost in bulk, but his endings are so ridiculously good that I've, I don't think I've ever read somebody who in every story leaves the reader with an un... there's a lasting impression on every story. Um, And on this story, I love the ending on this, too. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to read the ending of this, the, 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 the quarterback story, if that's OK. Yeah. Uh, The last two paragraphs. When time ran out, the voodoo had won 70 to 56 on the strength of nine touchdown passes. Children swarmed the field for a half hour autograph session mandated by the league. A long line formed around Wimpreen. Who stood under a goalpost signing helmets, noisemakers, shirts, caps, and footballs. A girl with a camera told him to say cheese. Cheese, Wimpreen said, smiling under the bright lights in the end zone, in no hurry to drive back to his father's house where Boots patrolled the backyard and all those old championship rings were stuffed in a dresser drawer. Um uh, I mean you're left with the rings in the dresser drawer, which is like by far the most amazing detail. I think, in the entire story. And it says the most about, about who he's writing about.
2: It's short of, boot, short, short of, of the dog. Right, right. You know, it's like, I remember, we, you know, Brick was better than all of us at the thing he wanted to do second most. And, I mean, he was a frustrated and ultimately failed songwriter yeah. for reasons passing all understanding. That he, I don't know why these songs didn't become hits, and maybe they will one day. But his songs were unbelievable, Mm -hmm. and he had that notebook, and I just remember being there at his house in January, and he had this notebook, and it was full of things that were never going to be recorded, and I just was like, that's the thing that was crushing. And we were at a friend of his house for the wake, and it was beautiful and wonderful, and there was a keg of Guinness, and people passed around a guitar, and sang songs that he would have loved and then we got drunk and sang 80s hair metal which he would have hated because it's been no, no river of nostalgia was ever deep enough for poison for brick and, <laughs> uh, and like i just remember they were started singing brick songs and people his brother and his friends were forgetting the words i'm like that's how long it takes to blow away mm-hmm. and to be like you were never even here and that's why I think these stories are so important and that this book is so important is because he did this thing and he did it great and nearly perfectly and it would just be some sort of crime against nature if we all just let these stories vanish like those unrecorded songs. And it just it was very important I think to everyone, I don't want to speak for everyone, but it was certainly very important to me that those songs, go, those stories go somewhere where they would never go away.
4: No, for sure, and he channeled. You could tell he ch- channeled that songwriting muse into his writing. Because there's there are a lot of strong parallels between his songs and the stories he wrote. I mean, they were, all had dynamite lines that you could just wanted to wanted to put a poster above your desk. Even the songs did. I wrote a little bit about that in my intro. Um, and that was kind of that thing that first to when he broke out the guitar and started playing that those original songs. It was just like, oh, okay. You know, we were all doing like you know Springsteen and Dylan, like just hacking out. And he starts bringing his original voice. Uh and it was poignant, it was about it was about real life, it was, you know, non judgmental, but it was also it cut deep with very seemingly simple turns of phrase, just like his writing did. So it really helps you understand his writing, listening to some of those songs. Uh and, and they're out there. There are people putting those songs out there, uh, uh, slowly but surely. So hopefully they can kind of run as a companion. But yeah, can we, totally.
1: Can we can listen remember, to what, can Tony, we, do you remember? Sorry. No, oh, go ahead. <laughs>
4: You remember the first
5: uh, stanza or two to Beth Israel?
4: Uh, yeah. Do you have a guitar?
5: Rises slowly.
4: Yeah. Uh, I, my guitar is not, ne- not here right now, but. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Put me on the spot. The sun rises slowly over Beth Israel, where the cripples and drunks fall together so well. Well, it's one last cup of coffee for the late night bunch, and there's plenty for breakfast, but nothing for lunch. I spent the whole night just thinking it through, but that's how long it takes to say goodbye to you. Thanks, buddy.
1: Amazing. (laughs)
4: Yeah, I mean, just I mean, the the words just cut to you. the the melody does, but but again, you feel that frustration, and but but he channels it into his writing. And I I think there are a lot of writers who are are failed musicians, um, but he he found a way to channel that voice, and they both just they run really. It's it's a, it's very powerful to his understanding who he was.
1: I want to play a, another song uh, that Tom sent me, uh, that was recorded at uh, Ludwigsi, I believe. Is that correct, Tom?
3: Yeah, this, uh, this may have been, it was one of the last songs um, for us uh, in Louisville, uh, October of 14, and um, it was a song that he had played uh, maybe two or three times before. I'd never heard a recording of it, and uh, he'd played it the year before. I'd literally been waiting a full year uh, to hear him play it again. And, um, on the first night, the night and I said, uh, "Rick, are you going to play this song?" Uh, but I guess there's really uh, there's two kinds of singers. Uh, there's the kind who uh, are really uh, easy and accommodating, and uh, just play any request whenever it's made. Uh, that's actually what I love about Tony is that he's so awesome and, and <laughs> just kind of both what the crowd once but Brick was a, another kind you, you had to wait for him to sort of come to you, uh, you couldn't, uh, ask uh, you know you couldn't just get anything on request so, so all Thursday night I wanted to do this song he just wasn't feeling it and, um, all Friday night I wanted him to play this song but nope it was not to be on Friday night either uh, Saturday night rolls around I, I see it all slipping away I'm like okay buddy, uh, are you gonna do this or what And, um, you know, he still made me wait, even, uh, probably another hour or two. And finally, uh, coming up around midnight, um, you know, he couldn't do it right when I asked. He still had to wait even further than that, but he he breaks out this song, um, that I, that I've been waiting to hear for, for a year. And, um, yeah, one of the last few, uh, that he ever sang for us. And, um, uh, my sister's husband, uh, happened to, uh, Record on his iPhone uh, just as Brick. <laughs> and um, so th- there's another thing you'll hear about two minutes into it. Uh, uh, another guy named Josh Sharp was out on the porch uh, taking a cigarette break, but he's a really great pedal steel player. So about two minutes in, you hear the screen door slam because Josh comes in and sits down at the pedal steel to sort of bring the song home. Hmm.
1: Okay, this is uh If You Need a Lover by Michael Brick.
6: If you need a lover like, I need a lover like you. Well, then write down your number and hurry along to the phone. And don't tell your daddy I don't got a car of my own. If you need a lover like, I need a lover like you The Oldsmobile's mine, my big brother's there in Iraq The Delta 88's got big bench seats in the back If you need a lover like, I need a lover like just hold my hand and we couldn't be alone at the homecoming dance nobody's coming home if you need a lover like I need a lover like you we'll move to Algiers where I hear there's work to be had Me, two-year community college isn't supposed to be bad If you need a lover like I need a lover like you Don't sit there listening When I'm trying to talk On the phone And don't call it wandering When I never want to come home If you need a lover Just hold my hand and we can remember when At the reunion dance That we will not attend If you need a lover like I need a lover like you will talk to me gentle I got sentimental, you know It's just a feeling I picked up And now it won't go if you need a lover like, I need a lover like you We'll move back to our hometown, they're fixing up the downtown there We'll whistle past the graveyard, see if the old ghosts care If you need a lover like, I need a
1: How's that oh, not a hit? A yeah, it's
6: amazing. Whistle like past
5: the graveyard.
3: Clear. Yeah. <sighs> <don't like> <sighs> yeah. Is there Jason Isbell, if you're out there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Is
3: there exactly. anything else you guys would like
1: yeah. to say about Michael Brick? We go I, uh,
5: from- uh, let me just say, uh, uh Buy the damn book and uh, uh, and read these stories not not out of sympathy but um, uh, but because they uh, they deserve to, to live on uh, long past uh, uh, long past our friend Michael
4: and, and they could teach you they could teach you a lot uh, they taught they, he's taught me a lot um, and also uh, thank you to uh, Mike Sager and Sager Group mm-hmm. for sure who, who made this all completely possible I'm not sure if if they got into the earlier credits but I want to make sure they do
2: and. And if you're a college journalism professor, assign this book to your classes. And uh, whichever college sells the most copies of this, Tony will show up and play a free concert. <laughs> so you've got that going for you. Semi-free, like a keg of highlights, but yeah, sure. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, Tony, so old Tony looked like a keg of highlights. It's actually, I, <laughs>
1: I, I actually after I read the book, I was like, this is going to be a book in my in my reporting class in my advanced reporting class um, because it is, you know, it is that perfect mix of really in-depth stuff but also deadline stuff and it shows what you can do when you don't just follow when you don't color within the lines if that well, makes sense daily
4: texan story i mean you can see where all of it kind of oh. began. That raw origin of that guy that just jumps into the into the story and starts reporting the hell out of it when he, I mean, he's there i mean with, with these sooner and texan longhorn fans sitting sleeping on mattresses in jail cells
1: i i did want to bring that story up because Partly because of Mike Wilson's introduction, which is amazing, um, but also the story itself. I mean, I'm thinking of how he was 19 when he wrote that. Maybe. Yeah,
2: I mean, no probably. Um, sure. go, going on 400.
1: Go, I mean, <laughs> I cannot even imagine. I, I I just it blows my mind. I mean, I think about me when I was 19, and I I couldn't do anything nearly like that. I I still can't. I don't think so. Um, sort of
0: when I read that the other uh, <clears throat> the other the other uh, day, um, first time I'd ever read it, um, I uh, sort of had to amend somewhat my theory about um, uh, lived experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something also just sort of natural and uh, mm-hmm. intuitive about uh, the eye he had and the, um, the sort of uh, wisdom that was there uh, to be able to do that as a college kid. I mean, I. Uh, I think back to the stuff I was writing for my school paper uh at that age and it's just uh embarrassing and I'm I hate that it's even uh archived anywhere it can it can be had if you really want to go uh, look for it and, and it's embarrassing. I mean that is uh this is the opposite of embarrassing it is right. a uh, an absolute preview of what was to come.
1: Right. Right. Um yeah, and there's there's one other story uh that's not in the book and it probably doesn't exist anywhere but it's mentioned in an introduction, and that's the story he wrote on Thanksgiving about Bro, the right, worst Thanksgiving never, ever. Yeah. I would, if that exists anywhere, I would pay a lot of money to actually be able to read it. If it exists anywhere, we need to put out a call to, to maybe it exists in paper somewhere hidden on a New York Times desk somewhere or something, but I bet that was just an absolutely fantastic story.
2: Oh, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe they did. I mean, it's like the it's like the record company didn't want to pe- put out Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I mean, <laughs> record companies never know. Well you know? I mean, it's like what's that? You know, if, I feel like it applies to some editors of you know the Willie Nelson song. If you don't like that, Mister Music Executive, then why don't you write your own song? <laughs> well,
4: it was, like, it was like you said, right, the Fat Joe thing. You got that one biased, but we're not. You're not gonna be yeah, right. this time. Yeah, right. No, we,
2: we're on to you now. Right. Yeah, we got you.
1: Well, yeah, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh, with me about Michael Brick and his new book, Everyone Leaves Behind a Name, True Stories by Michael Brick. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the stories in there are absolutely amazing. And I hope every single person in the freaking country buys the book because it, it's – you can't I, – I don't think I have enough superlatives to, to talk about it. So uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me.
5: Thank you, thank
1: you Matt. Thank you ben, very much.
5: A, uh, you can get the book on amazon.com or uh from the
1: perfect everyone go buy the book now if you haven't already done so if you have already done so buy it again uh so um anyways thanks a lot guys
0: thank you nice back. Back. Thank appreciate man.
6: If you need, a like, I need a like
1: you. That was an episode that I recorded back in March of 2016 with Ben Montgomery, Thomas Lake, Michael Cruz, Wright Thompson, and Tony Rehagen. They talked about the amazing life of Michael Brick, a great reporter, writer, musician, and friend. He died three years ago after battling colon cancer. You can read a collection of Brick's journalism by buying the book, Everyone Leaves Behind a Name. It was published by the Sager Group. We've linked to the book on our website, which you can find at the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences, and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Our music comes from Audio Nautics. The promos and sponsorship messages were voiced by Mimi Lachlan and Gracie Eldrenkamp. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.
6: Okay. That they're listening when I'm trying to talk on the phone And don't call it wandering when I never want to come home If you need a lover like I need a lover like you You could just hold my hand And we could remember when at the reunion day Talk to me gentle, I got sentimental, you know It's just a feeling I picked up and now it won't go If you need a lover like, I need a lover like you We'll move back to our hometown, they're fixing up the downtown land Whistle past the graveyard See if the old ghost came If you need